0: We're going to be in 1 John. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in front of you on the aisle, and you can grab that and and use that this morning. <clears throat> Working our way through John's first letter. And in the coming weeks, we'll end months, we'll be looking at his second and third letter as well. I uh yeah, I just pushed the door, there you go. <laughs> um I was grateful for Salim to preach for us last week. It was great to hear a missionary who uh, is serving in a country where Christianity is illegal. Um, And to hear him preach his first sermon in English was really a treat. And knowing that that took a lot of work in preparation. As we jump back into 1 John, let's just remind each other of what the main point is. What is his purpose in writing this to us? If you look at verse 13 of of chapter 5. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this letter is a reassurance letter. It's a letter where John is trying to reassure his people, his children. He often uses the word children for his people, for the church. That he wants to reassure them that they are saved, that they're loved. Um, And so this is a sweet letter. It's also revealing of the heart of our God that he wants to reassure you. He wants to give you things to look at to say, yes, you are saved because of these things. And so this is a letter of reassurance. It's a letter of love. It's like an older Christian or or a grandpa in the family reminding and reassuring the children of his love for them. But more importantly, it's of God's love for us as children. How do we know that we're saved? Ultimately, it's those who believe in the name of the Son of God. So that's what he'll be pointing us to once again in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. that has overcome the world, our faith? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and our hearts together as we meditate on your word be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what John is communicating to us in this section is is this. What he's communicating is that we can love God and obey his commandments. It's possible for three main reasons. We're equipped in three different ways, and I have it in your outline on the bulletin. Because in Christ we have a belief-giving birth, a burden-lifting love, and a battle-winning faith. Those are the three things that we'll read about this morning that we've been equipped with. That's how we can obey. That's how we can follow Jesus and love God. So we're going to be looking at each of those points in turn. The first is a belief-giving birth. Look at verse 1, and then we'll also see verse 4. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then he uses that same phrase, born of God, down in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So what does this mean, born of God, born of him, born again? What does that mean? Well, the first thing he's saying, how do we define what a born-again Christian is, is a born-again Christian believes the gospel, first and foremost, believes the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, if you would, I want to flip over to John's gospel. If you go to chapter 1 of the gospel of John, we're going to spend a little bit of time there because he talks about these same ideas, same author, and he's talking about the same ideas back in his gospel. So first we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, where John writes these words. That he, Jesus, came to his own, his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So notice that first, that first point there that John is making about the new birth. That it has to do with belief in Christ, who would believe in his name. But verse 13 says, Shows us how it works. That who were born, not of blood, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. What John is saying is that the second birth is initiated, not by us, but by God. When we believe that God is already at work in you, initiating and in regeneration. Now I want to flip to a scene in John's Gospel in chapter 3 that many of you know. it's one of the most interesting conversations that Jesus has with one of the Jewish leaders. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was this ruler, this uh, teacher of the Pharisees, we read in verse 1 of chapter 3. And he comes to Jesus by night, and he has some very important questions for Jesus. And he wants to know, Rabbi, verse 2, We know that you're a teacher, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. Unless God is with him. So how do you do these signs, Jesus? So how do you do what you do? And Jesus answered him in one of the most important sections of all of Scripture. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Well Nicodemus is confused by this, so he asks, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you see already Nicodemus is not tracking with what Jesus is saying. And he responds with perhaps one of the most crass statements in all of the Bible that a man could, in his adulthood could enter back into the birth canal so to speak right to go back into his mother's womb so you can tell that he's not tracking he's not thinking spiritually he's thinking physically right he's thinking uh, in in mere terms of human terms and jesus clears it up in verse six and he makes this very obvious point doesn't he that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, right? A human baby comes from a human mother. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit, right? You, you, one can only give uh, uh, and beget uh, of the same kind, right? And then he says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So we need to talk of the new birth or this uh, being born again, this idea in two ways. The first way is that it's a ne- the necessity of the new birth. And then secondly, I'm going to talk briefly about the mystery of the new birth. So the first is the necessity that Jesus says in Verback in verse three of John three, "Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again to see the kingdom of God and to be saved. But it has to happen. You, you can't just come to church and sing the songs and pray the prayers and all of it just be ceremony. All of it just be um, something you do, a rhythm you do with no real meaning. You have to be born again to see the kingdom, to know God and to be saved. You have to be born again. You have to be recreated. And so there's a necessity there. Otherwise, you'll, you'll never really know. You'll never see clearly. But he also says, he, he alludes to this idea that there's a mystery to the Spirit's work. Look at verse 7 and 8. He says, don't marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. And he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So just as that storm was coming in yesterday, the wind blows where it wishes. You, don't, you, you see the effects of it, right? You see the trees moving. You see the clouds wisping away. But you don't know where it goes or where it comes from. Actually, even with our weather apps that I use constantly, I'm trying to see when a storm's going to hit. Just this past week, it looked like it was going to rain almost every day, right? And then it just disappeared. So even all the technology we have can't grasp the mystery of the wind and the storms that we see around us today. And what he's pointing to is this idea that the, that the work of the Spirit is internal, it's invisible, that we can't see it necessarily happen. We can see the effects of it. So um, think of someone in your life uh, who is a Christian, and you've seen this transformation happen. You've seen this transformation of, of someone who rejects God, is, is, um, hates religion, hates Jesus. Or is just indifferent to it all. And then the Spirit works in their life. And they're totally different. And they understand Jesus in a new way. And they trust in Him and believe in Him. That is the work, the invisible work of the Spirit. And think about your own life. Think about your own, um, the work of the Spirit in your own life. I remember being young, and it's really, you can't explain. What necessarily has drawn you to the scriptures or to God, except that you were drawn, irresistibly, I might say. You couldn't resist it. I remember being young and just pouring, reading over Romans. You know, you've heard of the Romans Road. The Romans Road that leads you through all the chapters and, and teaches you about the gospel. And just pouring over it and just being amazed at my sin? And and that understanding that and seeing my sin play out in my life and knowing I'm a sinner and needing salvation and seeing that in Christ in chapter eight verse one there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus but but that work was being done in me and it was amazing to it's amazing to look back on that so if that's happened to you don't ever grow tired of being amazed at your new birth something that you didn't initiate right but that He led you toward and He he summoned you and he increased your faith. I was watching a video by R.C. Sproul on this topic of being born again, and he talks about having a dinner with Billy Graham one night. And and somewhere along the way they, they got talking about their testimony and when they were saved. And Billy Graham told him his testimony. And I don't know if you know that, but Billy Graham was he was kind of a heathen, I think, when he was young, and then and then he was saved at, at some revivals. And He just said the way Billy Graham talked about that night he was saved, it's like it happened yesterday when he heard Billy Graham say say what happened. It was as fresh in his mind as if it had happened earlier that morning or the day before. And so let us never forget that. If you have that testimony, if you have that remembrance in your past of the Lord leading you, calling you, and saving you, keep it fresh. Keep it fresh in your mind and rehearse it And remember that God is faithful to you and that he initiated it and he's going to keep you. Never grow tired of telling yourself how you were saved and born again. But there's a mystery to that, right? There's a mystery to the invisible movement of the Spirit. That's why when we see, um, we can't really see where it goes in other people sometimes. That's why some people can fake it, right? They can say that they're saved, but they're really not. Because there's an invisible aspect to it. But there's also people who struggle with, with their own salvation, who struggle with believing who actually are saved. Right? The way we understand it and what's happening in the Spirit is not always lining up with what is real. But what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that, is that this is the work that has to happen in you if you're to be saved. You have to be born again in necessity and that there's a mystery to it. The Spirit works where it wills. You don't know where the wind comes and goes, so it's with everyone who's born in the Spirit. Colin Cruz, a commentator, says, In both places, in John 1 and John 3, it's made very clear that being born of God is quite different from natural birth. It's something initiated by God and affected through His Spirit, and it takes place in conjunction with people's faith in Christ. So remember this. As you think about being born again, you did not birth yourself into new life. I didn't birth myself. You were born before you cried out in faith and God initiated that new life that you now experience and it resulted in trust and obedience and faith. But Look at the second half. Let's go back to 1 John. Look at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 5, going back to 1 John. The second half says, And one who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So what he's saying here is that born-again Christians love other born-again Christians. That's the mark of being born again, that you, you love your brothers and sisters in faith. Not too different from what he says in verse 20 of chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God in whom he has not seen. So he's saying you love those who bear the image of God, but you also love those uh, who are the children of the one you love. So that's what he's saying is there. You will love the children of the God that you love. And that's actually drawn out from just natural experience. He's, Cruz says, this is a metaphor drawn from natural experience, according to which a person who loves and respects a man will also love and respect that man's child. Now We have some great friends in our lives, and some of those friends have asked us if we would take care of their children in the unlikely event that they were to pass away at a young age. And also their parents were gone, so we're sort of next in line. We've actually had two or three friends that have asked us to do that, And so Hannah and I were like, you know, we could be in a really bad situation with a lot of kids if this went haywire. But it's unlikely. But we love their children, that's the point. We will take care of them. If we love our friends, we're going to take care of their children. Because, in a sense, we're all one family. And also, in verse 2, he says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandment. So again, he's going on that theme of loving others as a way to know that you are in Christ, that you will love others. And did you know that your obedience blesses those around you? That it's a way to love other people. And the flip side of that, your disobedience to God hurts those around you. That you love others through your following God. Have you ever thought about that? Through my following God and obeying him, I'm actually loving those, my brothers and sisters around me. Say your husband's not a believer. You love your husband when you prioritize going to church more than staying at home with them. Right? That's a way to love them. Or just a Christian who's struggling in your family. But when you choose to sin, it hurts your witness to Christ. And it hurts your fellow believers because we're one body. And so there's no isolated sin for the Christian. I think one of Satan's lies is that your sins are isolated and that your sins don't affect other people. That's one of the tricks he likes to pull, that you're alone, and if you do this sin, it's only going to stay with you. It's only going to affect you, and that's not true. One of the ways to love our brothers and sisters is to follow and obey God. When you choose to love God and obey Him, you're truly loving fellow believers indirectly and directly. Well, the second... um, The second way he's equipped us to obey his commands is that he's given us a burden-lifting love. And we're going to look at verse 3. A burden-lifting love. He says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. did you know that love demands things that love demands certain things i think there's a misconception about about god's love that if he loves you he will not ask you to obey him or to give you any rules or to give you any difficult things to follow he won't do that if he loves you that's a misconception that's not true The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, right? The central place where we see the rules that we're supposed to follow as God's people. Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 is prefaced with some words by God. And he says this, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Rule number one, have no other gods before me. So he prefaces the entire Ten Commandments with what? with love with redemption I'm the God who took you out of the land of Egypt I'm the God who loved you so the, the the rules are embedded in his love for us right they're not in contrast to his love they flow out of his love Think about this parents love their kids and demand their obedience because it goes back to our love right we want our kids to obey because we want what's best for them. We want to protect them. We want them um, to be secure and safe and, and follow God, right? So we give them rules, and it's because we love them. Think about this. Spouses love each other and demand their exclusive love, right? Husband and wife. They, when, they, when they join into marriage, there are demands and commands and rules in that covenant, and so how strange would it be if a wife told her husband that she greatly loved him What was okay with an open marriage where they could choose to sleep with whomever they liked? Right? That sounds strange. And honestly, though, if in our culture, it's becoming less strange. Um, but that, that should strike us as strange. If two people are covenanting together and then they allow each other to break that covenant. And that's why God is often portrayed in the Old Testament as the husband of an unfaithful wife, right? That he is the one who's pursuing us. He's placing these rules, these guardrails around us, but we continually rebel and leave him. And so Jesus' commands are clear. He said in Mark chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. He loves us, but he commands us to follow him and take up our cross. And in John 14, verse 15, he says that almost exactly what we read in chapter five here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So let's do away with this false teaching. That now that we have Jesus, now that we have grace and forgiveness, that we don't need any rules to follow, that we don't need to follow him or any commands. And it's rooted in the first idea we talked about, that being born again means that we want to follow Christ, that we want to follow the way he's led us. The second misconception about Jesus' love and his commands is that following Jesus is heavy and hard and difficult for the believer. And if you remove yourself from his grace, that is true. And in Matthew 23, I was looking for different places in the Gospels where this word burden comes up. And Jesus brings it up when he talks about the Pharisees. Matthew 23, he says, he said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat.'" So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So he's saying the Pharisees are putting heavy burdens on the people and they aren't willing to move them. So what were the burdens that the Pharisees were putting on the people? Well, it was... Legalism, really. It was law. It was rules with no love or grace. They had no understanding, the Pharisees, of their need for grace. They had removed it from the equation. They had forgotten the preface to the Ten Commandments. And they had forgotten what all the uh, law-keeping, what all the sacrifices were meant to show them that they needed to be forgiven. And so for you and me, if all our Christianity becomes is law-keeping, Keeping the rules, then you've placed an impossible burden on your back. you can't bear, and I can't bear. And if you do it to others, like the Pharisees did, you're putting an impossible burden on their backs as well. But in Matthew, he, Jesus says something else about his own burdens that he puts on us. He says this, "Come to me, Matthew 11:28 through30, "Come to me, all who labor." and are heavy laden for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How are Jesus' yokes and rules? Why are they light? Friends, if God's commands are burdensome to us, then we've failed to understand the cross of Christ. We've failed to understand that at the cross, our sin, our debt has been canceled. And that he's nailed every single one of our sins to the cross. And that he's done it all. He's, He's finished. The work is finished. There's no more earning. You can't try to earn your way with all the rules you keep. Because he's done it all. And all you have to do is believe and trust in him and be saved. And so when you do that, you can keep the rules a lot more easily because they're light and that burden is taken away. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress. And in one of the most vivid scenes in that story is when Christian is on his way to, well, he's headed to the celestial city, but he's got a long way to go. But he comes up to the cross, the foot of the cross. And all along the way, he's carrying this heavy burden, this heavy bag. And it reads like this where he, as he approaches the cross. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up, with, what, up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and the wall was called salvation. And up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending... And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. So the burden is tumbling down the hill. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, this tomb, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and light And said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. And then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. And he looked therefore and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. And the second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. And the third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. And then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. This is the song he sang. Thus far did I come with laden, laden with my sin. Nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss. Must here the burden fall from off my back. Must here the strings that bound it to me crack. Bless cross, bless sepulcher. Bless rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. So there he he understood, right? At the cross he understood what Jesus did to take the burden off his back. The burden of sin and unrighteousness and guilt and shame. It fell away because he understood that it all had been accomplished in Christ. And so Jesus' commands are freeing and burden lifting because he bore the burden of sin and accomplished the law's demands for us. And so as we're born again and we look back to that idea of being born again, we're changed, right? Regenerated. Generated meaning uh, beget or or come about. Re meaning again, right? We're changed into something new. In the um, new members class, I often talk about St. Augustine's uh, fourfold um, humanity, where we were before the fall, after the fall, born again and glorified. And he uses these Latin phrases. And before the fall we were passe picari, passe non picari, meaning it was possible to sin and it was possible not to sin. Adam and Eve had this choice, right? This will that they could choose. But after the fall, we're always sinning. It's non passe non picari It's not possible not to sin. We're totally depraved from birth. We're always sinning. But when we're born again, regenerated, it's possible not to sin. We're back at that original state where with the Spirit working in us, we have the ability not to sin, finally, through the Spirit's work. And then in heaven, in, in glorified state, it'll be non posse peccare, not possible to sin. We'll not be bearing any more of that sin anymore. It'll be all gone. And you know, this work of the Spirit to change the heart of the believer, it was prophesied for God's people in the Old Testament, that heart obedience to God's law was always the goal and it would be brought about by the Lord himself. From Deuteronomy 30, God said, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That's a promise to God's people, that he's going to circumcise their heart. And then in verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30, he continues, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? And neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart that you can do it. That's the promise with regeneration that we will be able to do what we couldn't do before because the spirit is working in us. We've been created anew. Well this idea of the burden-lifting love lead, leads us to the final point of being of having a battle-winning faith. Battle-winning faith. We're looking at verses 4 and 5. He says this, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Just to remind you, he says world earlier in in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, he defines what the world is. That the world, all that is in the world, is the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what we overcome as Christians. That born-again Christians have overcome the world. Now, how have we done that? Colin Cruz says that it's the faith in Jesus as the Son of God that enables believers to overcome the world. And so the truth is this. As believers, you and I, as we fight in, this, in the battles of life, that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. That we've already achieved everything that is victorious in Christ because it is finished in Him. Not for victory, but from victory. We've already, we already have it. We already have overcome the world as we trust in Jesus. And so our victory is our faith because its object is Christ. What we have faith in is the one that saves us. But brothers and sisters, your victory is not dependent upon your ability to keep the law anymore. That your victory is dependent on Jesus' ability to keep the law, which he did perfectly. That's how you're saved. And that means even if you fail, even if you look back on this past week and say, "Well, what a failure I am. Even when you don't feel victorious in Christ, you are in Christ because he is victorious. Sean O'Donnell in his commentary says this, most people have faith. Someone might say, I have faith, but not as much as I would like. Another might claim, I have strong faith, and go on to describe some deep internal emotion and abstract spirituality that is based on a religious experience that provided some meaning or authenticity to life. Such definitions of faith are different, though, from the Apostle John's. To him, it's not the experience of having faith in faith. In First John 5, 1, when he writes of faith, he does not say, Everyone who believes in whatever or whoever has been born of God. Rather, he writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So according to John, the nature of Christian faith begins with the object, or in this case, person, of our faith. Namely, the apostolic Jesus. You see, our faith has to be rooted in something real and objective. be saving and that is Christ and what he's done you know every so often about I don't know every five six years one of those heaven is is real books comes out and they're really popular you know what I mean by heaven is real meaning someone has an experience and they come close to death and they write a book and sell millions of copies make lots of money about their experience or what they saw in heaven I'm not knocking all of those stories I think we could talk about it later, about how legitimate they could be. But, but I think the fascination we have with that, of course we want to hear stories of, of, of heaven, but I think it reveals a desire that we all Christians have for, for more. Right? We want more evidence. We want something to lean on. Somebody to tell us that it's all real outside of what we already know in the Bible. Right? We, we, we're not... Um, Satisfied enough with what we read in the Bible and and what we know from our believers around us. See, faith is rooted in facts. It's not blind. The leap of faith, as people say, the leap of faith into Christianity is not really a leap. It's more of a step because you can have assurance of salvation, and it comes from knowing that there's an empty tomb. There's this witness we have of the apostles. And the understanding that it's all real and it all corresponds to what you know about yourself and your sin and your need for salvation. I had this conversation with a friend friend from high school when I was in college. And I wasn't expecting her phone call. We were uh, pretty good friends in high school. But I got got a call from her in college, and she was at sort of this crisis. I could tell just in her voice. She knew I had become a Christian and was uh, in Christian ministries, and um, probably through Facebook. And she was sort of at this crisis moment in her in her journey, I guess. And we talked about what, as much as I could share about Christianity and what I knew to be true. And but when we got to the topic of faith, and that's where she started to object. And she said, "Wait, see, what you're telling me is that I have to have faith. I have to have to just sort of trust that it's all true." That it's not all just proven and object, you know, objective, and I can sort of scientifically lay it out and see that it's all true. That I have to believe. And that's where, she, that's where she stumbled. And I probably didn't do a good job at the time to show her that it's really not a leap in the dark. There's so much evidence for Christian truth, there's so much evidence in the Bible. But she wanted scientific proof that it was all real. And God doesn't give us that. Why doesn't he give us that? Because he wants our hearts. He doesn't want to just say, he, wa- he doesn't want to just show us, like with Doubting Thomas. He doesn't want to just show us the wounds and put your hand here. He wants us to believe even without that because he wants us. He wants our trust. Our kids, uh, our family went to Bald Head Island a couple of weeks ago. and we, <laughs> It's an island, it's about three miles uh, in width. And <clears throat> you have to... Uh, Get all your stuff ferried over there. You can't take your car. First time we'd ever been there. Went with some of our family. And it was a a great time, fun. But unfortunately, so you're driving golf carts around all week. And we're at night. We're driving one night. And we had just gotten ice cream. And we're in a sort of a caravan of three golf carts. And we're at the very end of this caravan. And we just had ice cream. We're having a great time. I'm with Leland and Clara. And um, as we're going along in this sort of dark forest where there's alligators, apparently... Uh, I never saw one. Um, I'm pressing the gas all the way down, which is not, you know, untypical of a golf cart, all the way down. But then we just start slowing as my foot's all the way down on the pedal. And we keep slowing, keep slowing, keep, keep slowing. And I realize our battery's dying. And our caravan, the, the two groups that are with us, they just keep going. They, they go over the hill, around the corner, and it just gets darker and darker and darker in the woods and i'm with clara leland holden me and hannah and of course you know you know our emotional one she just starts tears coming down oh, i mean it's scary like it's dark it's night um even leland his, his little lower lip starts shivering and you know he gets he gets scared and um i'm trying to reassure them at the same time we're okay like we're not far we're just like a mile away from the house um, and they're going to come back for us, too. I was trying to reassure them. They're going to come back. They know that we're not behind them anymore. But that wasn't, wouldn't convince them at the time. All they saw was that we were in a completely dark forest. And they thought, you know, as the shadows are growing, right, as the alligators are starting to come out from the swamp, that's, that's what they're seeing in their mind. But I've got the bigger picture. I'm like, we're only a mile away. This is only a three-mile island. We'll be able to get back, no problem that they were unsure. They didn't know if they could trust me. They were unsure. And I was trying to, as much as I could, tell them all of these facts. And sure enough, our family did come back and pick us up. And they realized that we were not with them. But that's a lot like how we get scared in life, and we're not quite sure if we're going to be okay, if we're going to make it. And God is there telling us, Look, I've given you all these things. I've given you the new birth. Right? I've given you these burden-lifting commands that are not burdensome. Right? And I've given you this faith that grabs hold of Christ. And just trust me. We're going to be okay. You're going to make it. And that's what he wants from us. And so it's this faith in Christ that is a saving faith. As we just read about in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and a conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too, have had my sins forgiven, have been made right, forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Do you see how the writer of the catechism is not just saying this is objective truth, believe it, but it's true for me personally. And that is what the Holy Spirit does for you when you're born again. Personal knowledge that what Jesus did was enough to save me and bring me home to God. Just that I was trying to reassure our kids, were, we're going to get home to the beach house. We have this assurance that we're going to be brought home to God. And our faith overcomes the world because Jesus overcame sin, death, and the devil for you and me. So praise God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so encouraged that you love us and Jesus have done everything required to save us. And you've given us so much to look at in your word, in the world, so much that is true about about what you've done. So let us not shrink back from, from digging into your word every single day to bless others around us with our faith and with um, the Bible studies we do, everything we do, from sitting here listening to a half-hour long sermon to uh, going to Bible studies, uh, that's all geared toward knowing you more and to be able to trust you more. So Father, would you bless us as we walk by faith? In Jesus' name, amen.